Great and intelligent, Tommy Rich. How long you think I've been doing this? One year? I was expecting you to be like, well, I don't know, but I know that you've been doing this podcast for a year. I thought that's how we're going to jump in. But I you didn't just, know either because Nick didn't do anything either. And I was like, wait. I thought." Oh, Jake- no, I gave you the line before I hit record. That's, <laughs> yeah, uh, that didn't help. Jake, uh, it, what's it, your it, name? Nick didn't do anything either. It, it's, it's okay. It's like all the improv scenes that I ever have <laughs> ever done is I set up the situation and I go, they're going to come in and they're going to do this. And instead, they just come and be like, oh, what are all these elephant dicks doing on the floor? And then everybody laughs. And they're like, no, I had this whole scene about you're my father and I haven't seen you in years. And you set it up and then you come in and do this. And then I negate that. But then I'm the fucking bad guy yeah. because I didn't go with all the elephant dicks on the floor. Yeah, you don't but, like he, them. but he negated my fucking emotion when he walked in. But no, shit on me. <laughs> but fucking he's the genius that moved to New York to do improv. Well, that's the start of this episode. <laughs> Welcome to Ten Bell Pod. I'm Nick Alexander, and for one calendar year, I've been coming over to the Manning Cave to talk about the life and death of pro wrestlers with my two pals, Michael Loving. Who Nick has picked me up from my house and for one whole year driven me to Jake's (laughs) house because I don't want to drive. Also, stand-up comedian, pro wrestler, the Shawn Michaels to the Marty Tentnetti of the campers. <laughs> he is the man scout, Jake Manning. The GD right, and I don't want to drive either for this podcast. <laughs> Today, for our one-year anniversary, we are covering our hands-down most requested person, almost a mythical figure from pro wrestling lore, a true legend, a real rebel, he was Bruiser Brody. Huss, huss, huss. I do that before my sets now. I mean, you get your hair pulled back in a nice little <laughs> ponytail just like he did when he was not Bruiser Brody. He, he affected me a lot. So there are a couple main sources we pulled from besides our Googling and our just knowing if you're Jake. There's the documentary wrestling's last rebel bruiser brody did you also fucking make this one jake i did not michael elliott made this one but i had a nice 30 minute conversation with him uh, about the documentary to kind of fill in a couple holes here and there um in our entire podcast today I now question every documentary i watched leaving neverland and i was like jake crushed it again (laughs) there is also the book Brody, The Triumph and Tragedy of Wrestling's Rebel by Brody's longtime friend, Larry Madisic. Yeah. Yeah, crushed yeah. it. Yeah, one year. It took me one year to say someone's hey, name. Japanese, right. you fucking nailed it. <laughs> and uh, also Bruiser's wife, Barbara Goodish. Something really cool they did in this book, I thought, was they like alternated chapters between Larry and Barbara. And it really painted yeah. a picture that, yeah, he was a great wrestler, but he was also just like a dude. Yeah, it works so effectively. Yeah, yeah and Larry, God bless Larry Matisic. The St. Louis territory would just fall off into oblivion. Yeah. He has 
painstakingly collected the footage, wrote books, preserved the history of one of the crown jewels of the entire NWA territory, and a territory where Bruiser Brody or King Kong Brody was so prominently featured. So we would know less about Bruiser Brody if it wasn't for Larry Matisic. So the fact that he wrote the book, I can think of nobody better. Hell yeah. So before we hop into this, while everyone who is a wrestling fan probably knows the name Bruiser Brody, he never had a big long run in WWF or WCW, so I'd say there's a chunk of people that may not know exactly who he was. How would you describe Bruiser Brody to someone who's never seen him? Well, uh, I like at the beginning of the documentary, they take a quote from Bruiser, uh, which I got it written down right here, and the quote is, I believe in violence. I believe it's the only thing understood universally. And I think that was a good way to sum him up. But how I sum him up is I feel like he was like the first ever DIY wrestler. Totally. You look at like the Young Bucks and, and what they were able to do by just posting a funny little show on YouTube called Being Elite because they were bored in Japan and how that's now evolved into a show that's probably going to end up, it will end up on TNT, but I can imagine their YouTube show being very similar to what the show is going to be presented on TNT, but with matches in it and how they present professional wrestling and the idea of you know selling their own merch, controlling their own bookings, controlling their own brand, making their own deals through licensing and and everything like that. I mean, for someone like Bruiser Brody, that's what he was pushing towards. Like I have a brand, I have an image, and I am in control of it and I don't want a promoter doing that. And I'll work for these independent promoters because I can demand a guarantee up front grab that as opposed to wait for Henry High Pockets to give me a fucking cut of the house what he feels is fair and then I gotta go out and count everyone in the seats to make sure that what he gave me is correct no you gave me a guarantee and it is your job to come up and make sure that that you break even and or make money off of that guarantee I just think he's one of the original DIY guys yeah Brody there was there was one line that I put in here it was uh it was during the southwest match and the commentator he's selling the shit out of brody he's like i do believe that brody comes in the arena swinging on a vine it's like interviewing a tree of violence i don't know where to fit this in but brody reminds me of sweetums from the muppets and yep. I'm a big Muppet fan. I'm a big Bruiser Brody fan. So And good little story. I had that thought too, and I sent a picture where I put them both next to each other, and Nick responds, God damn it, that's in my notes too. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Frank Goodish was born June 18th, 1946 in Uniontown, Pennsylvania. Not long after, Frank's coal mining pappy moved the family to the suburbs of Detroit, Michigan. Outside of Detroit... Frank grew into an all-state football and basketball player at Warren High School. He was so good that he earned a football scholarship to Iowa State until he was kicked out for reasons no one has said. My father actually earned a football scholarship at Iowa State. Ah. Fun fact. And my dad, right before he was going to go to Iowa State, found out that the coach that recruited him ended up taking a coaching job at the University of Missouri. So my dad's like, "Mm, I really want to go. I'm only going to play for this coach. And he's like, well, let me see if I can get my full ride track scholarship from Western Illinois University. So he went and called the track coach up. They said, sure, come on in. We'll fill out the paperwork. And they 
filed his paperwork with Iowa State, and then he went to Western Illinois University, where he met my mother. Uh. So if it, if it wasn't for my dad uh, also saying F you to Iowa State, uh, I wouldn't have existed. And if Bruiser Brody wouldn't have said F you to Iowa State, we wouldn't have Bruiser Brody. So all th- good things come when you leave Iowa State University <laughs> before you go. Where'd you go again? Western Illinois University, uh. much like my father. I was also on the track team, and we won our first ever conference championship in school history. So, <laughs> suck it, Dad. <laughs> Frank then headed over to Wayne State, which is an obvious downgrade as Wayne is not a real state. Mm. Things didn't work out there either, so Frank Goodish ended up at West Texas State, where he was not only teammates with Eugene Mercury Morris, who went on to play for the undefeated 1972 Miami Dolphins. Back then, they only played 14 games, so it's kind of fucking <laughs> Yeah, but bullshit. he was part of the one of the best backfields all the time with Larry Zonka. And, uh, I love American Gladiators. <laughs> <laughs> Much like the Minnesota guys, where this weird wrestling wormhole opened up and spit out Rick Rude and Mr. Perfect and a ton of others, the West Texas State football program is legendary for pumping out professional wrestlers. Not only did Bruiser play there, Terry Funk, Dory Funk Jr., Stan Hansen, Ted DiBiase, Kelly Kalinske, Manny Fernandez, Tito Shantana, Tully Blanchard, Bobby Duncan, Blackjack Mulligan, and Dusty Rhodes played football there. Holy shit. Listen, baby, this is the play we're going to run. <laughs> we're going to go hook and ladder 37. Now tell it. Tell it. I need you to go deep on this one. Now tell it. I know you, you use playing quarterback, but on this play... The American dream is going to be underneath, <laughs> underneath thinner here. Okay? Uh, Big Dicky, Big Dicky, I want you to lay, lay, give me a pull block on this one. I know it's a path play, and we don't do pull blocks, but baby, that's just what I need. I need to kick your feet up and get on over there and fucking uh, stop, stop that defensive tackle over there. Now, 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 Dory, I need you to go out and do a little in and out route. Terry, just be crazy like a motherfucker. I want you to be funky like a monkey on your cuts. And then you, as soon as you see daylight, you head all the way to the end zone. And don't worry, the American dream, the American dream, he will deliver that big skin in your hand in full stride. And then when you cross that goalpost, when you cross that goalpost, baby, I want you to take that big skin and raise it above your hand real high and then slam it down in the end zone. You know what I'm saying, man? On a, on a one. Ready? Delay a game. You have been penalized. <laughs> oh, who's the who's the who's the referee? Uh, Jim Hurd. <laughs> now, the best reason I can give for all these American footballers becoming wrestlers is their connection to the Funk family. Basically, saying, "Hey, if the NFL doesn't come knocking, here is a pamphlet about letting pro wrestling into your heart." Frank would become pals with the Funks, and he would head down to watch wrestling in the Funks family promotion in Amarillo. But at this time, Brody didn't really care about wrestling. He was only interested in becoming a pro football player. However, Frank was also kicked out of West Texas for no shit, admitting to chopping down a campus cherry tree, just like George Washington. This is so weird. Come back to my father. When my father went to West Illinois University, he was a decathlete, and one of the events was the javelin throw, which my dad was very good at the javelin. And my dad got in the mail a, a handball glove, which he heard that if you had a handball glove on, it helped you improve your javelin throwing. 
Well, my dad was super excited to try this out and he was walking to practice and he goes, ah, I just want to see how it feels. It seems weird for me to have a handball glove on to practice javelin, but I'll just kind of have it and I'll just kind of fling it out here in the commons area. Well, it turns out that handball glove uh, worked really well and my dad threw a javelin at a power transformer. Oh. <laughs> shorted out all of the power <laughs> on all the campus. People were locked in elevators Jeez. for hours. What a badass. And my dad had to go in for another president of the university and just beg to stay in college. <laughs> they were ready to kick him out over this whole thing. He didn't just like immediately run to the power transformer and try to get the evidence. That's well, what and, I would have done. Well, uh, javelins loom, so it was like shorted out and fried, and like it was eviscerated basically <laughs> as soon as it hit. It was electrocuted to dust. Gotcha. He would have to scoop it up. Uh, uh, that fucks up my theory. So Brody then played football for the San Antonio Taros in the Continental Football League, which is still more successful than the XFL. He <laughs> also worked as a sports writer for the San Antonio Paper. Uh, eventually, one of his college coaches sent a tape to the Washington Redskins, who were at the time coached by Vince Lombardi, which what a mix of worlds. Frank almost made the team, but was cut just before the season started, and his dreams of pro football were done. And supposedly he he knew he wasn't that great of a football player. He knew he had knee issues, but he you know he felt like he, he was like I'm going to go hard. And if you want somebody that's got heart and dedication, I'm your guy. I may not have all the ability. I know I'm all banged up, but you know I, I feel like I'm smart enough. I can grasp all the plays because that's what people always talk about with Bruce Brody. He's a very intelligent individual, and the fact that he was a sports writer, I've heard on a lot of other interviews. I think even Terry Funk was talking about how they'd be wrestling at a show. And you just see this mountain of a man who, if you see pictures of Frank Goodish when he was reporting for the newspaper, a clean cut, uh, freshly shaven individual, but he was still a mountain of a man. And Terry Funk would see him in the crowd and goes, who's this guy? (laughs) Just seeing dollar signs. And he goes, oh, that's Frank Goodish. He's the newspaper reporter for this wrestling event. So he was reporting on wrestling for the newspaper at the time and still trying to play football where and when he could. Imagine it's like seeing Clark Kent. It's like, who's this chiseled <laughs> reporter? Like, yeah, it, you know? it's exa- exactly. That would be the best way to put it. It'd be yeah. like seeing Clark Kent. Like, once he goes through the, the phone booth, he's going to come out as Superman. Well, lucky for us, Frank Goodish was still interested in lifting weights. And it was while he was working out at the gym, he ran into pro wrestler Ivan Pusky. It was Ivan who would eventually get Bruiser into the pro wrestling business. And this is a pretty common origin story for pro wrestlers. See a dude at a gym. Hey, you want to wrestle? What What's that conversation like? I mean, as, as it always is, is uh, Tracy Smothers, he sees the fabulous ones working out at his gym. And he's <laughs> like, I want to be a wrestler. I really dig. I think you get what you guys do is cool. And then they teach him how to wrestle on the handball courts or the racquetball courts <laughs> at the fitness club and like, all right, you're trained now. I mean, Mike Lee, who works at the office, was trained by Bobby Eaton on a basketball court. Jeez, like, Jesus Christ. I mean, it always ends up being that way. You see a guy at a gym, you recognize him. Heck, I, when I first moved to Charlotte, I worked out of the same way as the Barbarian. So Ooh. if you're you're a wrestler or you want to be a wrestler, just go to a gym. You're probably going to bump into a professional wrestler. Yeah. That's just how it goes. Frank was trained by Fritz von Erich down in Dallas in early 74. Fritz recruited Bob Orton Jr. to help teach Goodish the fundamentals as well as Bob Roop 
the roop. The roop is on fire. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, uh, you've, quick- been, you've been waiting a year for that. <laughs> We've mentioned Bob Roop multiple times, and you've been sitting on it for this long? I don't know. Jake's giving you a compliment. I think it took you this long to come up with the joke. <laughs> Frank would make his debut April 22nd, 1974, challenging Bob Roop from the crowd, having a match with him in big-time wrestling, which would later become World Class Championship Wrestling Brother. Next, the 6'5", 300-pounder would head over to the Tri-State Territory, which would later become Mid-South. And in the Mid-South area, Frank the Hammer Goodish really learned how to wrestle, how to use his natural athleticism in the ring, and the business side of wrestling. Right off the bat, his nickname was The Hammer, and that makes perfect sense since uh, Putski got him to the business. I'm guessing Frank probably felt a bit of an homage to give a thumbs up and a thank you to the guy that got him going. Really kind of interesting, like the Mid-South Tri-State Territory was basically just a working relationship between Bill Watts, Grizzly Smith, and Leroy McGurk. They had their own little spots, and then eventually Bill Watts overtook them all, but kept Grizzly on to kind of, you know, watch over things where Leroy got kind of pushed aside, as they would say. But it was just that whole area of Oklahoma, Louisiana, Texas, long, long, long drives. <laughs> and, you know, when you started off in the world-class territory, you're you're driving around Texas, but now all of a sudden you're going from Oklahoma to Shreveport, back to Dallas, so or where all points in between. It was in Tri-State that Brody would form a tag team with his old football pal, Stan Hansen. Imagine facing that tag team, kayfabe or shoot, which to them is the same thing. And in <laughs> research of this, like I always knew that Brody and Stan were good friends. But after watching the documentary, I'm like, oh, man, their yeah. their friendship has gone back yeah. a really long time. Like their same, same. first kind of run at anything was them being a tag team and seeing Brody like trying to put that cowboy hat on and being a cowboy <laughs> with Stan Hansen like trying to acclimate more to him mm-hmm. and then see where they would eventually be and be one of the biggest tag teams in Japan and, and pairings of all time it just it's kind of cool that their their friendship has withstood the test of time it's just funny how you get paired up with somebody early you guys go separate you go your own ways, you develop who you are, and then you come back around together and it's like you're, you're better and and that relationship and that chemistry remains the same. It's that destiny shit that just sometimes works out. They'd win the U.S. tag titles in October of 74, but eventually Bill Watts did take over the territory and he split Stan and Frank up so they were off to have their legendary careers as single competitors. Frank would have several heated encounters with Bill Watts, which led to him leaving the territory and going to work for the Funks. And maybe now's a good time to bring up how much Bruiser Brody fucking hated wrestling promoters. Well, also, too, Bill Watts was a tough man to work for. Like I said, you have a territory that stretches all the way from Oklahoma to Louisiana and long trips. And when you're saying, like, hey, this is a 10, 12-hour drive between shots here, and we have to drive all the way through the night and everybody's trying to stay up and keep everybody up in the car. And Bill Watts just basically says, well, if you get tired, just pull the car over and do calisthenics and then get back in and then drive some more. It was tough. So for him to go from the Mid-South to Amarillo, which is a little bit smaller territory, 
Uh, it was probably much more welcome and it probably had something to do with like, oh, what's the smallest territory I could go to where I can make some money where I got some friends? Amarillo? Yeah, I'll go over there now. In Amarillo, Brody continued learning, mostly incorporating a style that would become the ire of many opponents as there was a saying, work like a feather or work like a funk. And I'm guessing that didn't mean you wrestled with like some really groovy bass lines. <laughs> I was totally expecting like a Terry Funk joke of just screaming and twirling around or something, <laughs> but then you went there. By the start of 75, the Hammer went to Florida, where he won the Florida Championship from Rocky Johnson. In Florida, he continued to sharpen his gimmick, his in-ring ability, working and learning from wrestlers like Thunderbolt Patterson, Jerry Briscoe, and Jake's boy, Scott Casey. Florida, Brody got his first big win that kind of put him up there. He actually beat Billy Robinson early in his career, which if you know who the fuck Billy Robinson is and what he meant, like an early career win over him would have been pretty big for Brody. In 1976, Frank Goodish would have his first and only run with the McMahons, wrestling in the WWF as Bruiser Frank Brody, which Vince Sr. would soon shorten to Bruiser Brody. Brody was brought in mostly to feud with the great Bruno San Martino. Take on the man named Brody. You, you make him Brody now because you want him to be Irish. You're going to do this again. Vince, you always make people Irish when you bring them in. You're like, you need to change your name. You can be Irish now. It's hilarious because this was right after Stan Hansen had broken Bruno's neck. So they decided to ease Bruno back in with Bruiser fucking Brody. And I just want to point out, go watch footage of Brody in WWF. I think most people have this image of Brody in his Japan days and his Puerto Rico stuff where he's kind of, he's huge, but he's kind of like slender in a muscular big dude way. But back in the WWF days, like he had that bodybuilder look. And I mean, he was just like almost like a movie monster looking motherfucker. And WWF always structured, especially at this time, and then especially when Hulk was there, you have the babyface champion, and then you just have a monster factory. You throw as many monsters at your babyface champion as possible, and you take it all the way around the loop. I mean, Memphis was no different with Jerry the King Lawler. I mean, this is how wrestling works. You have a hero, <laughs> and you just throw a new It'll villain in. It'll never not work. It never not work. I mean, it... I'm just talking about now. It's Well, <laughs> maybe they need to go back to that. Maybe <laughs> right? you need to have somebody who is so beloved and everybody likes, and you just throw unlikable, keep throwing people at Seth Rollins. Keep throwing people at Seth Rollins, and he keeps overcoming it. Let's create some more Brock Lesnar's and throw them at Seth Rollins. It was also in WWF that Brody would first wrestle Invader Number 1, a.k.a. Jose Gonzalez, who we will be talking about quite a bit. From the start, Brody and Jose had bad blood. Jose thought he was coming into the Federation to get a push, to be a star. However, Brody was under strict instructions from Vince Sr., who told him to always look strong so he'd look like a credible threat to Bruno San Martino. So Brody wasn't about to sell for this little lucha guy. When they were booked together, Brody manhandled Invader. When Invader complained to Gorilla Monsoon, he recommended they do a nice back and forth match. Instead, Brody beat the shit out of Jose. And he never forgot it. Well, I think even SD Jones made the comment. He basically said that Jose said that he'd kill that man uh -huh. someday after he got, a, got his ass whooped. 
I remember that from them, the Viceland piece they were talking about. Esty Jones said to Tony Atlas that Jose said years, years Jesus. ago, I'm going to kill that man. That's still one of those things where I'm like, it almost feels too perfect. Yeah. It almost feels like it's like it's script writing. When Brody wrapped up with Bruno, he headed back to Dallas, where he spent most of 77 working with the Von Erichs. He became super close to the Von Erich family, with the kids looking at Brody kind of like a big brother. And at this point, Brody had some ring work under him. He had a little bit of a name behind him from New York. And this is where he would take all this home and become a star working with people like Jose Lothario, Lord Alfred Hayes, Andre the Giant, and even NWA world champion Harley Race. This is the time where Bruiser talks about how combined with his journalism degree and his experience in sports writing and understanding the behind the scenes stuff that Fritz really taught him the bullshit in the wrestling business. And he learned all the ins and outs and how certain people take advantage of you, can take advantage of you, tricks of the trade. And Brody's intelligence mixed with Fritz's knowledge and experience was just like, oh shit, this dude's going to be incredible. On April 13th, 77, Bruiser even beat Fritz for the NWA American Heavyweight title, which is a big deal. It's a huge, it has to be a vote of confidence to have the Booker dropping a belt to you. Yeah, absolutely. And it just, you know, seeing that he was trained by Fritz and the fact that, you know, he gets this run, you know, he could go anywhere. He just worked in New York. You pick anywhere in the world to go, you go back and you work for Fritz. And you mentioned him being like a bigger brother to the Von Erich kids. And then when David passes away in Japan, it's Bruiser who finds him. Yeah. It, it just goes to show... The, the closeness, the relationship that he has with his fam, that family o- over years is just this connection with Bruiser Brody and the Von Erichs family. And obviously, Fritz had such a liking to him that he puts a title on him at this time. He has the utmost faith in him. And, you know, you talk about his issues with Bill Watts, and I think that has a lot to, like, Bill it when he is the bully in a situation and he overpowers somebody and he knew he couldn't overpower Brody and Brody's like, I don't want to fight about this all the time. And Fritz could be a domineering person as well as, as we know about his history with his sons. But for Fritz to kind of be like, all right, I'll kind of, I'll kind of back off or I'll, I'll, okay, Brody will do this and we'll do that. For him to have a working relationship just proves that Brody can work with with people if he has respect for you. And he obviously had a ton of respect for Fritz, and Fritz returned that for him. Eventually, Bruiser wanted to hit the road. So on June 5th of 77, Brody lost his American title in a Loser Leaves Town match against his close friend, Big John Studd. From there, he'd do a tour of New Zealand and Australia. Australia, he'd meet his wife, Barbara. This is a pretty sweet story. She was working in a hotel that all the wrestlers were staying out, and a group of the guys convinced her to come hang out. They all went to a bar, and one by one, the guys started to leave until it was just Barbara and Frank left to talk. They fell so much in love that before Bruiser left to go home, he put some money on the table, and he said, here's enough money to join me in Texas and enough to make it back if you don't like it. It's the exact opposite of the Dynamite Kid story. (laughs) It's it's tough. As much as these guys move around, especially like you're out late because you're hanging out with all the guys or you're traveling or you got to get to the next town. I mean, the only people that you're really going to talk to on the road as a pro wrestler are the people working the front desk at the hotel and the waitress at the diner. 
And that's about it. That's all the conversation you have with regular people. So it's not a surprise for someone like Bruiser Brody to fall for somebody who works at a hotel. But just the idea of uh, we're on the run here. Uh, if you want to be with me, if you dig and you get this vibe, like there's a lot of wrestlers that took a lot of chances when they met somebody. I'm like, this girl's really beautiful, really special. I'm picking up a good vibe. And you got to make that assessment right away. Like even in my own personal life i've i've met people in a, in a hurry in a rush and i've jumped into relationships with them very fast some of them worked out some of them not so much but that's just kind of the way it is as a professional wrestler you're constantly on the move you're constantly doing things so you meet somebody you like somebody and you're like hey can you put up with this craziness if you want to i'm right here i'm not changing if you want to subscribe to this craziness and be a part of it and be the relief from all of that here's your opportunity but if not I gotta go. Jake, you don't have to justify liking the Australian girl to us. We get it. Pro wrestler, Australian girl. During this, I was seeing a lot of similarities in myself. (laughs) And now that I'm dating an Australian girl, (laughs) hopefully I don't go to Puerto Rico anytime soon. You know what, Nick? I can't wait till we learn her name. (laughs) (laughs) No matter what, just going to call her Ben Bird. Yeah, bin bird, dumpster chicken, whichever you prefer. <laughs> dumpster chicken, Jesus Christ. I don't even get any of this. I'm laughing. Barbara came to America, and they got married in Vegas. Uh, this would actually be Bruiser's second marriage, but he'd stay with Barbara for the rest of his life. And while Bruiser Brody was a ball of violence and destruction, Frank Goodish was a family man, a loving father and husband who took great strides to take care of his family. Also while touring New Zealand and Australia... Brody met King Curtis and Mark Lewin, and while they never got married, they would have huge influences on Bruiser Brody. And what better guys to learn from? And it kind of makes sense now that when I saw this line in the in your outline, I was like, oh, okay, now I see why Bruiser Brody was so special. Because King Curtis, legendary promo guy, especially in the Polynesian area, there was a, a story, I guess there was something wrong with a tape that got sent to the TV and they had to have something out there like, wait, we're going, we're going on TV, we, we don't have a show. And they just gave King Curtis a microphone and he basically cut a promo for almost the entire television episode Ooh. and it was captivating. Captivating. Jesus fuck. Yeah. <laughs> he was, most people nowadays just know him as the guy that was in the Dungeon of Doom that, that I forget the dungeon master or yeah, whatever. There was like 45 people in Sullivan stable. So well, it's like... But he was the guy that was painted up like a rock and yeah, he goes, yeah. come on Sullivan, <laughs> I like that's King Curtis. And that's all people know him as, but no, he was an unbelievable, captivating storyteller as far as promos. And Mark Lewin, oh, I can't wait for us to do a Mark Lewin episode because... But I'll just hit some of the bullet points with Mark Lewin, because Mark Lewin, I mean, he wrestled Luthez, wrestled Gorgeous George, influenced by Dr. Jerry Graham, who was Vince McMahon's favorite wrestler of all time. Mm. He also, like, took professional wrestling as an art form, like, around the time of before television. And I think if you talk about the barnstorming days of professional wrestling and use that to promote wrestling shows. Also, too, you know, Mark Lewin would alter his body depending on his opponent. Like he was supposed to do this feud with Jimmy Snuka 
And he goes, Jimmy, I see you're a little bit more ripped up, and I'm pretty ripped as well. Do you want me to put a little extra weight on? <laughs> Do you want me to be a little smaller? Like Christian he would, Bale. he would, he yeah, he, exactly. Just, he was like Christian Bale yeah. in professional wrestling. He'd be like, Do you want me to be a little bit bigger, a little bit lighter, to so just so your moves look a little bit better, so yeah. physically I look different? Like those, just those little things that guys weren't thinking about at the time. Also, too, uh, Mark Lewin married a fucking princess. What really? He was wrestling somewhere in Polynesia. And he was at some place and they had the royal box and there was this <laughs> princess in there. He like looked up and it's like, who is this beautiful woman? Waved. And then whoever his handler was, he goes, make sure you get her some flowers. Motherfucker sending flowers to princesses and wooing them into marrying him in a marriage that he's had pretty much for his entire career. Oh, wow. He I is an unbelievable man. You watch one of his matches, and Mark Lewin's running around the ring, row, 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 barking like a dog, which we know would turn into hus, hus, hus. And Mark's out there just making all these weird uh, facial tics, and just he bowed his shoulders up and down. And it was like Brody saw that and just kind of adapted it and turned it into his own thing. But even before that was amazing with Mark Lewin, he was like the sweet baby face. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he, he had people mail him brownies <laughs> when he was a baby face. But the, like he asked for brownies? and No, was, they were like, he's oh. such a sweet man. I've made baked some brownies and they would mail it to okay, the television okay. studio for addressed to Mark Lewin because he was such a sweet and honorable like baby face on television. <laughs> and then he flipped as the maniac. July 29th, 1978, Bruiser made his debut at the St. Louis Wrestling Club, beating Ed Schaefer as King Kong Brody. And this name change was needed as Dick the Bruiser was already established in the territory. Brody was an instant star in St. Louis, wrestling great TV matches against Terry Funk, Ted DiBiase, and Jack Briscoe. And a rare occurrence, Brody liked and respected St. Louis owner Sam Munchnik, making St. Louis a favorite territory for Brody. Well, Sam Munchnik was like a, a gem of a man, probably one of the most respected members of the NWA, probably the most respected NWA president of all time. And the St. Louis territory was viewed as kind of the test run for NWA champions. Hmm. Like if you held the Missouri title, which was the premier belt in the territory, the Missouri title, you were probably in line to possibly holding the NWA title. Hmm. And also to the St. Louis territory, they had really strong television. So if you wanted practice cutting promos and, you know, selling tickets and stuff like that, like, is this guy a draw? Can he draw in St. Louis? Right. If he can draw in St. Louis with the way things are set up, then he can draw on all the other NWA affiliates across the country. Gotcha. So if you can't make it in St. Louis, you're not going to make it anywhere else in the NWA territory system. So St. Louis was kind of seen as that testing ground, that proving ground. Like you'll see a lot of early matches of Ric Flair. You'll see early yep. matches of Ted DiBiase when they were considering to put an NWA belt on him. Uh, David Von Erich when they were very close to putting the belt on him before he passed away. Um, Harley Race he, when he's between NWA title runs, he was the Missouri champion. So yes, yeah, St. Louis was like the testing ground for all of that. And Bruiser Brody was a big draw in that area. Yeah, in fact, when they did the flare match, this kind of become infamous online with tape traders and kind of became a big deal. Larry talks about how there was no buildup. There was nothing at all. No angle. They just knew they got flare and they got Brody and they booked the shit because they knew it would just put butts in the seats. 
this match is pretty damn good. One of, one of my favorite little points on this, I love, I don't point out little stupid details in matches because I just love the little details. So it's a two out of three falls match. To start the match, all the lights are on. You can see everyone in the crowd and everything. The first fall happens. They have a little break. And then for the second fall, they turn out the crowd lights and it drops to black and it's only on the ring lights. And that little detail to just boost the drama and add a little more to it, I fucking loved, man. It gave me a little bit of goosebumps. They do an hour draw and the bell rings and everything, but if you watch it, the match is 54 minutes long. Do you have any clue why they did that stuff, Jake? It's like, it's just six more minutes. It's a, it's the drama. Sometimes it's also a curfew. Sometimes the length of the show. But also, too, like, you're just, you know, you don't, nobody's keeping time. I know, I know, I know. I know. But it's my whole thing is like, it's just six more minutes. Yeah, but six more minutes. <laughs> six more minutes of a fucking movie doesn't make it long. I mean, it, it can. Yeah, and the same thing can happen with a match. I mean, Sometimes I can tell you how many times I've seen an eight-minute match. I'm like mm, you guys wanted two minutes too long. Yeah. So can you imagine after an hour, you're like, mm, you probably were out there six. There are so many hour Broadways that are not actually hours. That that's a good point because eventually Brody will get into an hour Broadway that I actually I watched for this. And honest to God, it's one of my favorite fucking matches of all time, but we'll get there. Yeah. But I didn't expect some fucking nerd in 2019 going, ah, they were six minutes short. And also, too, like, wrestling an hour is a long time. No, I know. I just, it's always like, it was only six minutes. Trust me, after you've done 55, <laughs> it is a lot. So I'm just confused. That's all I am. Go on. You know, Flair talks about wrestling the Road Warriors, and he would talk about, like, Tully and Arn would always be like, ugh, we gotta go wrestle the Road Warriors. And Flair always being like, look, if you wrestle to their gimmick, this shit's easy. <laughs> but, you know, at the time that Flair would be wrestling, like, on the Great American Bash tours against Road Warrior Animal or Road Warrior Hawk, and, you know, he's wrestling to their gimmick, obviously you can see that there's a little bit of an experience difference. But when you see Flair in there with Bruiser Brody... Like, you can see Brody keeping up with his size. And I remember when we did the shoot interview with Flair, Flair was talking about, like, he goes, man, you see this big guy and he can go the whole time. Like, like you're coming down the apron and then you know he's got to give you the boot and you got to get hit off the apron and you're just kind of <laughs> clinching. Like, oh, this is going to turn out, man. You're fine. And then, you know, he picks you up and he holds you up in that body slam and you're up there forever and slams you down and he hits the rope and he's going for that knee and you just see him jumping in there. You're freaked out. But then he lands on you. It's perfectly fine. <laughs> but then you're like, you're worried. Is this big son of a bitch going to blow up after 20 minutes? But you're like, nope. This guy's here every step of the way. Everything that I call, he's right there for everything. I can do more with him than I expected. And nothing but glowing memories. Also, too, knew he'd, he'd lay it in, and, and, but he would never complain when you brought it back. So Flair always talks very high, almost like a gleam in his eye. Like, oh, <laughs> I like the physicality that I had of this man. And uh, the, the Flair match, I also noticed... When you hear when I heard so many stories, like I knew of Brody and his work, but I never saw too much of him. So we always you always hear the no selling stuff and just like the flare matches. And I'll get to some stuff later. Like Brody could sell, man. Brody was so fucking good at selling, and it was it was believable. It wasn't just 
where he would do one little movement and then he would be done with it. Like you would catch him doing it, you know, seven, ten minutes later, and it would just add to that that desperation and that worry and that danger. When he respected you and he knew you were good, he would sell his ass off for you and he would do it better than most people. Now in America, Bruiser Brody is a legend. But by the start of 1979, Brody would debut in the place that would make him a god. Giant Baba's All Japan Wrestling in Japan. Bruiser would arrive in Tokyo January 2nd, 1979, winning a two-on-one handicap match and entering a battle royal. Out the gate, Bruiser had matches with Baba himself, the Destroyer, and then Brody had claimed his position as a main event star in just about a month. Well, when you work on Baba on top, and usually it's like a monster factory, as we mentioned before with Bruno, Brody was in a very enviable position in the territory days that every territory had their own conquering hero, and they're going to need a new monster to come in every single month. So, like, Brody could come into Memphis, he could come into AWA, he could come into Texas, he could come into New York, and just going over to Japan was just the next evolution of that because you know somebody needs to go over and make baba look good and you know baba's the guy cashing the checks so you make him look as good as you possibly can but then you get in there with jumbo saruta you're going to get to go a little bit more and at the end of that, that run where you're like you've wrestled baba you've wrestled jumbo those two will sit down and be like what do you think can we make money with this guy? Can we, <laughs> or, or, what can we do with this guy? Is he? Can did you have a good match? Did you have a good match with him? Did he work well with you? Was he easy to work with? Was he a good guy? And they confer and like, yeah, we can make money with this guy. He's a good guy. Let's do it. Let's take him around the horn. Let's bring him back for more tours. After a month in Japan, it was back home to Dallas, where he'd help recruit a young Japanese wrestler who would become the Great Kabuki. And while feuding together, Brody was the first person ever to take the green mist to the face. There was one cage match I watched with the great Kabuki and Brody. And just pointed out, it was a Texas death match in a cage. And the announcer put it as, means you just need to incapacitate your opponent to the point where they cannot get up before you walk out of the cage. (laughs) So a regular (laughs) escape cage match. Brody was also, at this time, doing runs for AWA, Central States, and Portland. While Brody always made time to work in Dallas and St. Louis, by 1980, his schedule was starting to fill up with mostly Japan dates, as that's where the money was. Japan was important that way. As long as he had Japan to fall back on, he didn't have to put up with anyone's shit, and he didn't. In 81, he did a long run in Georgia Championship Wrestling, mostly feuding with Blackjack Mulligan. Back in Japan on December 13th, 1981, Brody would be part of one of the biggest shots fired in the war between All Japan and New Japan. In the finals of the All Japan Real World Tag League, the Funks would face Bruiser Brody and Jimmy Snuka, who would be led to the ring by New Japan's Stan Hansen. Have you guys seen the footage of that? Oh, yeah. I watched the match. Oh, that's good shit. Oh, that's what pro wrestling's all about. And, like, the footage, because the, the way it's filmed, it starts in the back with them. Oh, it's so good. And you just <laughs> see Stan Hansen there. So, from the video, like you see him before the crowd comes out. So, when he, so when Snooko, who's got his hair out to here, yeah. and Brody, Brody comes out, and he's got his hair out to there, and they come out, and they come out with Stan Hansen, you see the reaction. The crowd's oh. like, oh. <laughs> 
And then like when Terry Funk falls to the outside and then Stan Hansen pulls out that elbow yeah. pad and oh. then Lariat's Terry and Terry gets wrapped up in the streamers oh, and he comes the in the ring. Ever. And it just it's like that's everything that pro wrestling is going to be. And then it goes off that we have Stan and bruiser tagging here in all japan is just wonderful and beautiful and it's everything that you look for i mean it, it's comparable to john moxley showing up on an aew pay-per-view it's it's that level like it, comparable of excitement and just this belief of like anything can happen at any moment in time in professional wrestling terry sells that fucking lariat forever yeah like he, he just like hansen basically murdered him he's in a coma and and his brain has internal bleeding. On top of it being such an iconic moment, holy shit, what a great match. It, it was really good. By 1982, Brody was mostly hanging around Japan, and it was that year he'd win his first title there, beating Dory Funk Jr. for the international heavyweight title on April 21st. Brody would hang on to his title until August 3rd of 83, where he'd finally lose his international heavyweight title to Jumbo Saruta. He'd roll through 84, winning the tag team titles with Stan Hansen. It was February of 84 when Bruiser's dear friend David Von Erich died of an overdose while on a tour of Japan. Brody and All Japan referee Joe Higuchi found David's body and this is the famous story where Brody flushed all the pills to protect David's reputation. Oh. Also in 84, the landscape of wrestling was changing. Vince had taken control of WWF and was putting his plan into motion to overtake the wrestling world. This led to the death of several territories and a lot of wrestlers losing work, but not Bruiser Brody. Brody was the first truly independent wrestler he had built a reputation with fans and promoters that would protect him when companies and wrestlers alike were losing everything. Like I said, he's the, the consummate like, heel that you bring in. And he could just bounce from territory to territory, do an entire loop around the entire country. And then after about a year, he comes back around and whoever the new hot baby face is in that area, he's feuding with them. Nope. Then leave and come back and then go to this territory and go to this territory. So... With territories dying, he's running out of places that he can go. And then he's got to come back to Texas a little bit more than he would, so he's not as big of attraction. But like he's marketed himself as this monster, much like I market myself as a comedy wrestler. Bring me in, let me wrestle your comedy guy. I'll go back out. I'll go to the next like promotion yeah. and then wrestle their comedy guy and then go back out. That's just how it, how it goes. But like as places for him to do that dry up where he can get, you know, weeks long worth of work feuding with somebody. I mean, he's probably feeling the pinch. And that's why you see him go to Japan a lot more because they can cycle people in from different territories and bigger stars and he can wrestle newer Japanese wrestlers and he can go there for six weeks and make what he would make in an entire year doing the territories of the States bouncing around like that. In June of 84, Bruiser went to Puerto Rico for the first time with his tag partner Stan Hansen where they'd face Abdullah the Butcher and Carlos Colon in front of 20,000 people in San Juan. The Bruiser Brody versus Abdullah the Butcher feud is one of pro wrestling's great feuds. So many of the butcher matches, I don't want to say if you've seen one, you've seen them all, but I mean, they are really good. They kind of stick to a formula, but 
the best ones are the Puerto Rico stuff because the stadiums are so big and the people are so there's no real seats and it's just them plowing through these like fishes of sea of people that move and reacting to them and you see like the smiles and the fear at the same time on these kids faces as they push through them and blood pouring everywhere it's beautiful in 1985 this motherfucker done lebron his ass over to new japan all japan had brought in the road warriors the newer younger sexier monsters in town and apparently baba was paying them just as much as brody upset with this brody left and showed up to challenge Inoki march 21st 1985 people don't understand how big of a deal this was like Nick said LeBron it over here kind of as a joke, but I mean, it was, it was, this was all over the front page of newspapers. This was a huge fucking deal. And if you watch their first match, I mean, the crowd is molten. I, I, (laughs) I just can't believe how excited they were. It's so infectious. Those, when those Japanese crowds get into stuff and jumping to new Japan was always considered like a mistake. Just mostly because at this time in New Japan, because like I said, in all Japan, you you had Baba, you wrestled Baba, and then you had Saruta. So you had those two guys to work with right there. But when you went over to New Japan at this time, there weren't a whole lot of other guys that you could work with and draw money with. It was just you get that big match with Inoki, and that's about it. I mean, unless you're going to draw big money with Tiger Jeet Singh, like, like it just wasn't wasn't in the cards. And like at the time, all Japan was the one bringing in all the hot new gaijin talent because of all the connections that had been made via Baba. Baba had made a lot of headway in the states, and Saruta also made a lot of headway in the states, and they made a lot of connections over the years with American promoters so they were sending over their talent and some of their better talent over there and had working relationships with the NWA, with the AWA the only working relationship New Japan kind of had was New York and we all know how Brody felt about WWF at the time and you know Vince Sr.'s kind of moving away from his relationship with New Japan as well because he wants to do his own thing but Vince Sr. worked pretty well with uh, New Japan and that's another thing too is like New Japan was in a tough spot because they had that working relationship with WWF at the time and he was getting guys like Hogan he was getting guys like Andre Bad News uh, multiple different other like American talent and all of a sudden now Vince Sr. has kicked it over to the Sun and the Sun wants kind of nothing to do with it also too New Japan's junior scene was thriving at the time that's where they were making most of their money was the tiger masks, the black tigers, dynamite kid. That's where their real money was at at the time, not at the big heavyweights, which, you know, if you wanted to see big heavyweight stars, that was all over in all Japan. So when Bruiser jumped over, it's like, okay, I got this really big payday with Anoki. All right, who do I work with next? Oh, yeah. nobody. Great. Uh, shoot. What really blew me away getting into Brody's work and doing all this research is Brody and Inoki had the best matches of Brody's career. The first match I ever watched between them, it was it's an hour-long draw, 9-16-86. It's not on YouTube or Daily Motion. I had to dig if you can find it. Please fucking God, watch this match. I did not expect to get so far overwhelmed by this. To start off the match, they're both in the ring. This is The crowd's going nuts. 
They're staring each other down. Immediately out of the blue, Brody jumps out of the ring, jumps over the ringside barrier, and runs deep into the crowd and out of camera range. And you don't know what the fuck is going on. They, I mean, they beat the shit out of each other. They go back and forth. But this is the match that showed me how good Brody understood psychology. Some of the spots in this made me mark out so fucking much. Not on the moves or any of the weird dramatic near pinfalls, but Brody's psychology made me mark the fuck out. And keep in mind, this is about a year and a half into his New Japan run. There's an early spot where Brody rolls to the outside because he's been selling the leg kicks. The referee's counting him, and he gets up to 18. And in so many of the previous Inoki and Brody matches, it was either a count out or it was either a DQ. So at 18... And Noki gets so fucking pissed off that he screams in English, Come on! Because he doesn't want it to end like all the rest of them. And he runs to the outside, and Brody, who was selling like a poor little baby, immediately breaks out of it and starts kicking Inoki, and then throws him over the ring barrier onto a table. Brody still sells his leg, but you could see that Brody was playing possum to get Inoki into his brawling realm. The crowd is such in the palm of their hand that I was in awe. I really don't like... This is up there for me with Hogan and The Rock at WrestleMania. Like, they are so invested. It is unbelievable how loud and how in this match they are. He, there's uh, There comes where Inoki's Inseguri is over big time. It's deadly as shit. Brody takes two of those, stumbles around the ring, and the way he holds up, holds himself up... With his knee, with the ropes, with everything, the crowd is losing their fucking mind. And it's simply Brody selling a kick and just, just, just almost going down. It's like you hear about Brody being the wild, crazy brawler, but here his knowledge of psychology, like I watching this, I marked out and I immediately elevated him in my head of what he was and what he could do. Facing Anoki in various singles and tag matches is how Brody spent most of his time in his New Japan run. In New Japan, Brody would tag with Dick Murdoch, known racist, Jimmy Snuka, <laughs> alleged murderer, and Matt Bourne, Doink the Clown. Uh, alleged uh, rapist as well. Oh, so Jesus. Just oh. That got way worse. Yeah. So so I shouldn't say, saw him at Tremont. <laughs> no. so, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> Aside from a slight raise in money, New Japan wasn't great for Brody. He had a constant tiff with Inoki over losing or not losing to each other, while neither of them really trusted each other to repay a loss. New Japan also wasn't ran as tightly as All Japan, from the booking decisions to the bus schedule. Frustrated with pretty much everything, Brody would leave New Japan but since he had burned all his bridges in all Japan by leaving, he was kind of stuck in Japan wrestling purgatory. In 86 and 87, Brody would spend a lot of time back home in what was now World Class Wrestling Association, where he would not just wrestle, but he'd do some booking and work behind the scenes. He also did what a lot of people consider the first ever shoot interview. I think the Dark Side of the Ring called it an ABC, of NBC affiliate, West Virginia. The thing has got a blue screen in the back yeah. of the yellow shirt. I've seen that before. And I remember when I found it, I thought it was just a remarkable thing. And I sent it to like Chris Hero and Cole Cabana, oh which is weird because like Chris Hero is a big tape nerd. I'm sure he saw it. He, he posts stuff all the time. Yeah. Yeah. But I sent, I sent it, sent it to him. Like I just found it and I converted it and I found it a very high quality. And 
we uh, I was talking to Michael Elliott who did the documentary and I go why didn't you include that and he goes well I didn't know who really owned it and like it said like an NBC affiliate in West Virginia but I don't think it was that what I feel like this shoot interview quote unquote was I feel like this was a student project oh. I'm feel what, what, what I see it is if it was in West Virginia, I'm guessing it's around like the Pittsburgh area, which is not far from Uniontown where he grew up. I wouldn't be surprised if a childhood friend or independent promoter who he was working for was like, hey, my son is in college he and he's doing a journalism class. Could you please sit down and do an interview with him? Because he needs need to interview somebody. So it'd be kind of cool if you did it. Because Bruiser Brody is talking very openly enough that it's he's still kind of in character but not quite in character and the guy's asking kind of like weird questions and it's filmed in a certain way that it feels like it was something that was like here's my journalism professor to show you how i do interviewing and so obviously he's trying to like show i'm a good interviewer and i'm gonna get this pro wrestler to admit that pro wrestling's fake on camera and get an a i think i'm that's what i'm feeling like he's trying to push out of him a little bit and it's a little relaxed like i kind of know this guy who i'm talking to much like the old uh bob barnett shooter interviews these things that were proto shooter interviews were usually like friend of a friend you want to just talk about the business openly so i feel like the only way to get bruiser bird to do that would probably be like a student project so i'm thinking like this is a student tv studio because i had a full-on tv studio where i went to college back to western illinois university this mentioned it three times on this podcast already so that's what i'm feeling like this was but like looking at it again after years of seeing it i was like man I did really take a lot from this interview and applied it to myself and my career afterwards because I remember seeing it at a very important juncture in my career and I keep thinking about like this independent spirit I have about myself and my career and how I go about my wrestling nowadays. Like I tell people all the time, my biggest pet peeve in all of the world is guys walking around backstage at a wrestling show with rolled up pieces of paper. Nothing fucking infuriates me more than going to an indie show and here's all these fucking assholes walking around with rolled up sheets of paper. Let me take a look at my format. Let me see what the format says. Oh, we got this and this and oh, you're doing this tonight. If I see a fucking asshole walk up to me with a rolled up pieces of paper and unfucking roll it and then tell me what I'm fucking doing, I fucking am gonna knock it out of your goddamn hands. You talk to me like a fucking man. You stand in front of me and you tell me like, Jake, I want you to wrestle so-and-so, and can you do this? And I'm looking for this out of you. Talk to me. Don't fucking be like, well, on the format sheet, it says here, and your agent for the match, fuck you. <laughs> fuck off. Like, I'll get immediately fucking mad when I see three, four, I've fucking, I've seen five people walk around with fucking rolled up pieces of fucking paper for a show that they said, oh, we're, we're going to stream this. When really they fucking stream it later on like everybody else fucking does, and, or they don't even fucking release it at all. All you goddamn motherfuckers are walking around with rolled up pieces of paper. <laughs> But not a single one of you motherfuckers are going to figure out how people are going to see this show online. So fuck you. So I I feel like Bruiser Brody, if he was around today, would feel the same exact fucking way. Just like, I want to I wanna wrestle on a show. 
I want to touch the people. I want to do something that moves the people. I want, I'm doing something to make them feel a certain way. And for him fighting for, for those things and him blazing a trail for like the independence themselves is just like he fought for every inch on this trail that so many guys are traveling on today. Yeah. And I think that this, this interview that he conducts, you, you see that very clearly in how he feels about it. I, I probably watched the shoot four times now because I watched it once just to get reacclimated with it. And then you just see how fucking smart and good of a dude he was and how of a positive outlook he had and it all made sense. And it's just heartbreaking, man. You see, and I, I got to give it up for the, whoever interviewed him, like Jake mentioned, if if he has if he was a student in journalism, the dude was on his toes. Asked Brody some really good, introspective, smart questions. He, he threw questions at Brody. I was like, oh shit, he's got him. But then Brody would come back, and he would just nail it so well that I just like I'm blown away by how damn smart this man was. And it just every time I see it, I'm impressed more and more. In 1987, Baba would take Bruiser Brody back after Brody held a boombox outside of his window playing that Peter Gabriel song. Excuse me, was it the same uh, Peter Gabriel song where it says, I will put over Jumbo Saruta. <laughs> yes, I, I believe that's the one. In your ring. <laughs> <laughs> I guess part of the bargaining chips was he would be back to have a last run with the international heavyweight title, trading it with Jumbo Saruta. He even lost the feud to him as a favor to Baba. And that's a big deal. Bruiser losing clean on TV. I can't imagine there's more than three matches in existence uh, recorded where Bruiser Brody lost. Early in his career, you can find some, and that was a big thing with uh, the Inoki thing. They were both so big about getting pinfalls and doing that. It's like they wouldn't even agree to a two out of three falls match and give the first person the pinfall because they figured the other dude would fucking shoot on him and just run out and get a count out or something. It, it, It was such a big deal. So for him to do that, it's monumental. Also in 1987, Brody would be part of one of the most bizarre matches in pro wrestling history when he took on Lex Luger in Florida, January 21st, 1987. Lex and Brody were having a pretty decent match when in the middle of it, Bruiser just quit. He was just done. He stopped selling. He did these awkward long holds. He, he goes for like a, a shoot MMA single leg takedown and he gets it the first time and then eventually gets him in a weird headlock that he holds way past an exciting moment. And then the second time he goes for the single leg takedown, Lex is just out of this and he freaks the fuck out and tries to scramble away from him. Uh, it's beautiful. Well, it wasn't really technically in the middle. Like it started it's, and it was it was like after a couple minutes and you could just tell like Brody was like, yeah, I'm not interested in doing whatever you want to do. Like he was, he was saying like, all right, let's go and do this. I'm not happy with what's going on. Uh, and then he got in there and he's like, you know what? I'm fucking Bruiser Brody. I've shit on many a fucking uh, wrestling opponent before. This guy's no fucking difference. <laughs> Like, yeah, and it's like Lex's last week Yeah, there. It's Lex's first cage match. Nope. You know, he doesn't want to lose, so he's just like, 
man, <laughs> fuck this guy. <laughs> fuck this whole thing. And that's the one thing that kind of is disheartening to me. Like, you know, you were talking about the hacksaw headlock match that he had. Like, the times that Brody would just not do business agreed like that's a shitty fucking thing like have your arguments in the back like i said i fucking was just talking how great i am when i see guys with rolled up pieces of paper like have those fights in the back but when you're in front of the paid audience like don't shit all over them don't don't insult them and and i feel like he did that probably more than he really should have and this was definitely one of those cases. There, are the, the, the moments in the corner where Lex is just punching him and punching him, and he's not moving. And then he, lear- he he turns to Bill Alfonso, which everyone knows from the loud blow and whistle days in ECW. And he, and Lex just turns to Bill like, "The fuck am I doing? <laughs> what, 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 what should I do, man?" And then uh, the whole they improv the whole finish where Lex throws Alfonso off of him and gets the DQ. Yeah, but that's like Bruiser just had that reputation where he's like, if he didn't want to do shit. Fucking ain't gonna do shit. But it's funny, in my research, I was going through a list of matches he had. He gave Rip Rogers three DQ wins huh. in Central States. And then they led to a Lumberjack match. So he was willing to do business for people. Like, if, like here's Lex Luger. He's gonna be a big, huge star. You know, and he's like, you know, fuck this guy. But then, like, someone like Rip Rogers, like, no, let's help this kid out. Yeah. So he had that in him. But there's there'd just be something that would some sort of tick. Uh, a great story that George told me one time about Bruiser Brody. One of the big things that happened a lot when guys would go over to Japan is they would stop over in Hawaii for like a few days, and the guy who ran Hawaii got hip to that and figure out when the schedule was, what everybody would be there, and be like, "Hey, you guys want to be on this big huge show? We'll book one of the bigger stadiums in all of Hawaii." And of course, like people from different territories would be going over to Japan. So he'd have these super shows in Hawaii. He'd have like AWA guys, NWA guys, even WWF guys on the show. And it's just like, hey, here's a quick payoff right here in, in Hawaii. Like while you're just kind of hanging out, enjoying the beach, you can make a little bit of money before you head back to the States. Well, Brody was there and Jim Crockett was there with, you know, Flair and, and a lot of like the talent for Jim Crockett promotions. And Jim Crockett can be kind of a butthole and say some things that rub people the wrong way. <laughs> also, too, uh, it's during a time that his promotion is gaining a lot of traction. And it's becoming the the forerunner in the NWA. And like I said before, the great relationship that Sam Mushnick had with Brody. Brody's probably like seeing Jim Crockett as like, who the fuck do you think you are? You know, like, oh, you're the fucking new guy running the NWA. You're no fucking Sam Mushnick. So words were said, and Brody, like, said something offhand to Jim Crockett. And Jim Crockett's like, I don't have to put up with this. Matter of fact, um, anybody who wants to work for me, we're leaving right now. And so everybody that was working for Jim Crockett Promotions left before the show started. Wow. Because Bruiser Brody said something to him. And Jim Crockett (laughs) did it just to show, you can be a bully all you want, but I have the true power now. So that's probably why you never saw Bruiser Brody wrestling for Jim Crockett Promotions. Huh. But do you think, Jake, that maybe he reached a point with a promoter where the only way they would fucking listen to him or take anything to heart is if he put it out there and really just kind of embarrassed their show and made them look a fool. I mean, it might've been a power play, you know, it's like, I've got no other resort. I mean, 
I, I appeared. Achilles had that <laughs> yep. that sense of loyalty to the fans. Like, hey, you guys paid money to see me. You're seeing me. But, you know, I don't have to have a... I'm not obligated to have a good match. Yeah. And also, too, is a sense of like, well, I've got... 80 more matches this year and it's July right now or September. So I've got so much I have to do. I have two more tours coming up. So I'm not going to do anything that's going to risk my body because my body is how I make my money. It it could be a very Zen calculated, (laughs) smart play as opposed to something that comes off almost as a petulant child. I would probably lean more towards the former than the latter. Bruiser spent the rest of 87 working back home in Texas, and in spring of 88, he'd have what would end up being his last run in all Japan, because it was the summer of 88 that Bruiser Brody would head to Puerto Rico to wrestle for World Wrestling Council. This led to July 16, 1988, when Bruiser Brody would show up to Juan Ramon Stadium in Bayamon, Puerto Rico for a match with Dan Spivey, and by the morning of July 17th, Bruiser Brody would be dead. So the first question we have to ask the murder of Bruiser Brody is why? Why would Jose Gonzalez kill Bruiser Brody? I think there are three motives. Number one is money. Apparently they owed Bruiser between twenty dollars and $25,000 they didn't want to pay. And Brody wouldn't let you short him a penny, much less thousands of dollars. And one theory is Brody stayed on them about it, and instead of paying, they killed him. Motive number two was power. Brody was going to buy a piece of World Wrestling Council. There are rumors of him buying anywhere from 5% all the way to majority share in the company, making Carlos Colon and Jose minority owners, if not pushing them out altogether. Motive number three is revenge. We touched on the heat between Jose and Brody in WWF. In Puerto Rico, it got much worse. Brody would belittle Jose in front of people in the locker room, uh, double-cross him on finishes. Brody would brutalize him in the ring, sending him to the hospital once. Now, some of that may be a little kayfabed, but there's most certainly some truth behind it. Things got so bad that they just turned Brody babyface so that the two didn't have to work together, and that's how they both ended up in the face locker room July 16th, 1988. Well, and also, too, like in the territory system, the dream is always to own a local business or own a territory, and that's your thing, and that's what you're building towards. So what better place to own a territory than Puerto Rico, which is a beautiful and wonderful island, and then it's not going to be hard to bring guys in. Like, imagine if you're running Puerto Rico, and you're telling your buddy Stan Hansen, I'm going to bring you down here, and we're, we're going to wrestle each other because that's the big match, Stan Hansen versus Bruiser Brody. We're going to do here, and we're going to make a tons of money together. So, like, Brody... Brody's seeing this as an opportunity to take over Puerto Rico or buy into Puerto Rico and then slowly end up owning it. But then, like, he's got to deal with these other guys and he can't trust them at all. So it's kind of like, hey, I'm trying to work with you guys. I'm trying to make your business better. I'm trying to make my money. Why are you making this so fucking hard? And then also the other aspect of it, too, is, you know, one of the descriptors of Bruiser Brody is he's a bully. That is, he will bully people. That's probably why he didn't get along with Bill Watts all that well, because they both like to bully people and make them make it very clear. I'm the most powerful person in the room. And sometimes you do that through bullying tactics. And that's how some people 
particularly run their business. But your career seems to work pretty well when people are scared of you. Uh, you get to kind of get to do what you want when people are afraid <laughs> of you yelling at them, screaming at them, or the possible threat of physical violence. And Bruiser Brody did that quite well in and out of the ring. My, my only thing is with the whole him buying into the territory things, like as smart and as intelligent and as Brody was and knew how to read a situation, the fact that he would want to buy into Puerto Rico when there was obviously some animosity and some tension. I don't know. Well, at the same time, too, he probably felt like, okay, I'm going to buy it. I could buy out a larger share. I'll just slowly push them out, and then I run Puerto Rico. Right. I think he's thinking, like, I can navigate these waters enough, get in enough, and then eventually buy them out. And most of the big-name American pro wrestlers are going to side with Brody, not the... Exactly. I think he's seeing this... Yeah, that's a good end. I think he's thinking that he's going to be the guy that gives these guys like a vacation tour of Puerto Rico. Yeah, yeah, We're going to yeah. make some money. I'm going to have no shortage of guys that want to come over and wrestle for me in Puerto Rico. So with most of these controversial things, we'll either give flat out both sides of the story or the average of the circulating rumors. Here's the average of the stories, mostly based off Tony Atlas, who was an eyewitness, and Dutch Mantel, who was there and has spoken about this several times. Tony Atlas was outside of his hotel walking to his car when he saw Brody and Dutch Mantel waiting on a ride from Jose Gonzalez, who had never shown up. So they all got into the car with Tony and went to the venue. When they got there, they walked in and there was Jose Gonzalez talking to fellow WWC owners Carlos Colon and Victor Jovica. Everyone was settling in, getting dressed, getting ready for the matches, and Tony was drawing in a sketchbook. Bruiser caught some of his drawings and the two began talking about them. Bruiser asked Tony if he could do a drawing for his son and he pulled out a picture of his son Jeff. Before he could hand Tony the photograph, Jose Gonzalez approached Bruiser, a towel covering his hand. Jose asked Brody to step into the shower so they could discuss business. Jose led Brody into the shower, with Brody still in street clothes, a bag he was carrying in one hand, and a picture of his son in the other. As soon as he stepped into the shower, Tony Atlas heard two loud screams. Tony stepped into the shower to see Brody doubled over in pain. Atlas said he saw Jose Gonzalez pulling a bloody knife into the air, cocking his arm back for another stab. Tony grabbed Bruiser and pulled him out of the way, and as he did, Jose swung the knife down wildly, cutting Brody's ponytail off. At that point, Carlos Colon ran into the shower to restrain Jose. Brody looked up at Tony and said, Brother, I'm hurt. Don't let them hurt me anymore. Mm. Depending on who's telling the story, the ambulance took anywhere from 30 to 45 minutes to an hour to get to the venue. The delay was blamed on the dispatchers flat out not believing this wrestling organization wasn't just doing a work. They actually had to call a radio show, basically putting out an SOS over the station's airwaves. And when the ambulance was finally dispatched, it was stuck in the traffic around the venue that Bruiser Brody's own star had helped create. The most interesting thing while doing research on this, uh, Savio Vega points to it in his shoot interview, that I actually looked up a map of these two uh, stadiums. So you got a uh, Juan Ramon Stadium, where, where the WWC show is. Right next to it is Ruben Rodriguez Coliseum. And that night, there was a Menudo concert, 
which if you don't know Menudo, they were like the Hispanic Backstreet Boys of the late 80s. So the feeling is that uh, Savio talks about and other people have gotten into is that if you look at the map, if they would have got the ambulance on its way, the way that it would get to Juan Ramon Stadium for the WWC show for Brody is they would have to go through all the traffic that was there at the time for the Menudo show, get through all that bullshit, and then get through the traffic also for the WWC show, which people were arriving to at the time. So they not only had to fight through the wrestling traffic, they had to get through one of the biggest popular boy bands at the time traffic. So I think that was really the hang up on that. In the locker room, whether it was for fear of their own lives or their own jobs, apathy towards just another locker room scuffle or personal hatred towards Brody. While Bruiser laid bleeding out in the locker room, no one else came to his aid but Tony Atlas. Since the wrestlers dressed out in a baseball locker room downstairs from the dugout, the EMTs that arrived couldn't carry Brody's massive body, so Tony Atlas had to actually carry him up the stairs. They finally got to the hospital to discover that Brody had two 8-inch cuts, one through his liver and one through his intestines. Tony grabbed a doctor, literally picked him up, and put him in Brody's room. Upon seeing the severity of Brody's wounds, they immediately started surgery. As Tony left the room, the last image he would see would be Bruiser Brody laying in the hospital bed, clutching his wounds with one hand and in the other still clinging to the picture of his son Jeffrey. While in the waiting room, Atlas was understandably losing his mind. Uh, since he was a monster of a man, he was scaring people and would be asked to leave. They told him Bruiser was stabled and he was taxied back to the venue. Tony arrived to the locker room where Bruiser's blood still laid wet on the floor and business was carried on like nothing happened. They wrestled their matches, they laughed and joked. Jose Gonzalez wrestled that night. All while Bruiser Brody fought for his life alone in a hospital, a fight he'd lose by 5.50 a.m. July 17th. Frank Goodish was dead at the age of 42. Buddy Landell talks about who was in the heel locker room that at first, when all this started going down, that the doctor told them that Brody had just slipped and knocked his head and he was bleeding. And then 30 minutes later, the doctor came back and said a fan had stabbed Brody. And then a little bit later, found out that Brody got in a fight and he fell and hit his head on a porcelain sink and cut himself. And then the fourth fucking time, the doc came in and told everyone that Jose had stabbed Brody. And then the heels have like no clue whatsoever. So a lot of these matches guys are out there wrestling and they're working so all the baby faces are updating the heels of what's going on so they're having a full conversation like hey is Brody okay and while they're wrestling at the stadium when the police finally came they were starstruck by Jose and Carlos who were huge in Puerto Rico this was the point where Jose and Carlos had spun the story about a fan stabbing Brody that's when Tony said no it was Jose now, the Puerto Rican wrestlers refused to translate for the Americans, so the police barely understood their side of the story. And at this point, no one was arrested, no one was brought in for questioning, and the murder weapon was never found. Eventually, Tony did get a translator in the locker room. And you want to guess who it was? Invader number two. <laughs> R- Roberto Soto eventually stepped up and interpreted for Tony to the cops. I mean, it sounds like the perfect kind of conspiracy theory thing. 
of, of fucking course, Invader One, the man who stabbed fucking Bruiser Brody, his tag team partner, is the communications between the one good witness and the cops of fucking Puerto Rico. After the show, Tony Atlas arrived back to his hotel where he was met by Savio Vega, who had Tony's bags in his hand. He told Tony to get out of the country because they were looking for him because he'd been talking. So Tony went and slept on the beach for the night. The next morning, the wrestlers met in a hotel to discuss not only what happened, but their own safety. And later, Dutch Mantel and Tony Atlas filed a police report. So on the 17th, Brody's wife Barbara and their son Jeff had flown into Puerto Rico after receiving an emergency call from Carlos Colon's wife. While at the airport, she had a chance run-in with Abdullah the Butcher who was rushing out of the country, and it was he who told Barbara that Frank was dead. They had a small memorial with a handful of wrestlers, and Barbara had her husband's remains cremated so they could more easily travel back to America with them. So that leads to the trial. Jose Gonzalez was arrested, but his bail was posted right away. Jose Gonzalez never stepped foot in a jail cell. It was like fucking $12,000 for murder. The trial was set for January 20th, 1989 in Puerto Rico. Leading up to the trial, Carlos Colon put Invader on TV as a lovable baby face and burnt that image into the people's mind. And it worked. The people of Puerto Rico, from the press to the jury, they were 100% worked. There are rumors of witnesses being intimidated or receiving death threats. The first degree murder charge was changed to manslaughter without explanation. The trial date was moved around. Key witnesses didn't know when it was. Barbara Goodish didn't know when the trial of her murdered fucking husband was. The only people that took the stand for the prosecution were the doctors that worked on Brody. Meanwhile, Carlos Colon and Victor Hovica took the stand to protect Jose and slander Brody's name, bringing up everything from backstage scuffles to actual wrestling angles, painting Brody as a violent madman. They even showed pictures of Brody from magazines covered in blood in the courtroom. So Jose claimed self-defense, and in the end, Gonzalez was acquitted. Mr. Another thing they did in this trial is they portrayed Jose as like, oh, Jose was such a much smaller man and this madman was coming at him. I mean, what was what was he to do? He was completely and utterly intimidated. And another thing that gets brought up a lot is like Jose had a lot of personal issues. He lost his daughter recently. Mm. He was not of a sound mind. All of these things are coming to light at, at this time. And then as we talked before, you could bring up like, oh, he beat me up in New York. He beat me in a different country. And then he come here to my home and I'm so much smaller and see he's a madman. It's it's a very easy narrative to paint when he's the only one telling it. And Tony Atlas didn't even take the stand and was never asked to, to testify. And one thing after seeing Tony Atlas shoot an interview that we, that we did with him after seeing his his participation in our documentary, his participation in the Viceland piece about this murder. Tony's Atlas is consistent. I, I actually wrote down the only things that aren't really consistent. And you tell me uh, if this even changed a different story. Like he talks about curling him in the cart as opposed to picking him up solo without the cart. That changes in one of the things. Uh, carrying the doctor or grabbing the doctor, that changes. Seeing the second stab, 
he said he sees a stab, but it was the first or second one that that changes. The cutting off the ponytail is a is a different element. The doctor being in a rush afterwards and him punching a wall. Those are the only things that has changed in Tony's story over the years. As consistent, as concise, and repeating it over and over and over and over and over and over again. Only those minorest of details have changed over the time. The whole laying out of hearing the yells and in the inflections in which he hears him and ha- him having a picture in his hand, all the biggest of details, all the de- details that matter have been said correctly time and time and time and time again. So he is the perfect witness for a case that he never got to be a witness for. Jose gets off for fucking self-defense. Throughout all this, just the one thing that's missing in all these stories or anything is so many of these cases you see defensive wounds you see someone like even if it's a small 108 pound woman she has cuts on her hands she has like skin in her fucking fingernails she has all these indicators that she was defending herself and she was trying to live brody has no defensive wounds it's two fucking hits if that doesn't speak that it was just a surprise attack i don't know what was they were Two perfect hits to kill a man of his size. You don't ever hear Jose talking about, look at these scratches on my face. Look at look at my black eye. Look at this. There is never anything to indicate there was an actual scuffle. Because you know if he had just an iota of a fucking scratch or a bruise, that he would use that as a defense and it would become a talking point and it would go on and on and they would and any defender would say, look at this. But nope, you have two wounds to fucking kill a man of his size. And if that doesn't just blatantly say 100% sneak attack, I don't fucking know what can. And what's insane in Puerto Rico, unlike the US, you don't need a unanimous verdict. I think it was eight to four or nine to three in Puerto Rico of who thought he was guilty versus who he was innocent. Normally that would be a hung jury and he would he would have gotten a retrial. But nope, he was fucking off on self-defense on fucking kayfabe. Some of the aftermath of the trial, Savio Vega said he was at a match after the trial and he saw Jose hand an envelope to someone he believed was one of the members of the jury, heavily implying that they were paid off. To throw fuel on the conspiracy fire, Dutch Mantel said that when Vice did the somewhat recent documentary on Brody, they tried to pull the files from the court case, and there wasn't a trace of them. There is also a document that apparently was delivered to the judge of the case hours after it went down. It's in the book, Chokehold Pro Wrestling's Real Mayhem Outside the Ring, and I'm going to read this to you right now. An unsolicited handwritten letter addressed to the Puerto Rican trial judge received just hours after the jury verdict. The letter signed in undecipherable handwriting was apparently sent by a witness to Frank Stabbing. The letter says the following, translated from Spanish. Dear Judge, in the case of Mr. Jose Huertas Gonzalez, there are a lot of different versions and they've changed. First of all, Mr. Huertas called Brody to the showers. He had a knife under the towel in his hand and he also had intentions to kill him. 
and Cologne and Jovica knew what was going to happen. Because in addition, Huertas wanted Brody to have a match with Danny Spivey and for him to lose the match so that Cologne would have a match with Spivey. And Brody didn't want that humiliation. That's why there was an argument about money owed to Brody by Huertas. When Cologne went to the showers, he saw that Huertas was holding Brody by the hair and at the same time he inflicted a weapon in the stomach. At that time, Huertas left, running with the towel in his hands, covered with blood. He took his keys, went outside of the showers, and came back inside as if nothing had happened, and had his match. He fought after what happened, and it was, if, it was as if he had just killed an animal. Even so, this is all due to the fact that Huertas wanted to fix a fight for Brody. However, due to his pride, Brody refused to do so. Cologne and Jovica are owners of this corporation, and Huertas is a stockholder and third man who did all the arrangements for the fights. They call him the Booker. Consequently, all this has, been, has to be investigated more because there was a contract signed by Brody, a good man and a student of law in Texas coming out this year. But Cologne knew more, and so did Jovica and Huertas. They had already commented that they were going to kill him. In quotes. I'll kill that son of a bitch. I'm going to kill him, were the words said by Huertas. But that letter to the trial judge did not prompt a re-examination of the facts of Frank's murder. The trial had been, a jury verdict reached, and the case was closed. I think the one of the more disturbing things of the aftermath of this murder, and I heard this from an interview from Bully Ray. I've also heard this from... Uh, Jamie Dundee. I've also heard this from a couple other wrestlers that went to Puerto Rico years after this happened. Years. And, of course, Jose Gonzalez still wrestled down there. was still involved in the promotion. He would walk in. And whoever the new American that'd be coming through sometimes be in the same exact locker room where all this happened. And he'd come sit down with him and goes, Hey, my friend. So as you know, see that shower over there? That's where it happened. And just make a point that like, hey, I killed the man over there. And if you have a problem during this whole time, you'll end up the same exact way. The fact that he used that to intimidate people decades afterwards is gross, scary, dark, disturbing, and just bad all, all around. And, um... He could only do that there because uh, word got around. And I've heard this from a couple different wrestlers. I think uh, Black Bart, several other wrestlers have said this on interviews that Japan got word to Jose that basically said, you're not allowed to leave that rock. He's like, if you ever leave that island, we will murder you. Like, because of the connection with the Yakuza and, and and Brody being a cash cow. Look it up. I don't, I don't know if Jose Gonzalez has ever left Puerto Rico, but if he ever does, he was told that he will be murdered. That point feeds into the weird, totally fucked up angle that came out of it with Onita and FMW, where Onita tried to create an angle and thought it would be big business by hooking up with Jose in Puerto Rico. And you can find these pictures. They're online. We'll pr- I'll probably post some because this shit's fucked. Where basically they go to do a press conference and then Onita sells it like Jose stabbed him in the stomach. And there's pictures of him bleeding and everybody freaking the fuck out. 
and then there was going to be this big feud, but there was such a big backlash. I mean, this was out. This was the backlash was so big that Onita abandoned the angle, and this wasn't even during fucking social media. So I'm just amazed what would have happened if it would have been now. And that feeds into Jake's point because they thought that Onita was being a marketing piece of shit because he just wanted to get Jose to Japan so that they could fucking kill him. But they didn't. There's no happy ending to this story. There's no justice. There's no redemption. There's no payback. The only positive note we can even hope to end on is Brody was part of the 2019 WWE Legacy Hall of Fame, which seems to be mostly capital and old school WWF guys. I don't understand. Um, but, you know, he deserves to be remembered. He deserves to be honored. He should have a full-on thing. Exactly. He, he, they should have his wife there accepting, giving a long speech. She still speaks very highly. And I'll say this, she was very hard to get to. Yeah. She she did the book with Larry Matisic because Larry had that relationship with, with Frank for years and that happened. But she didn't do interviews. She didn't do anything. It, it took a lot of persuasion just for her to do the documentary with us and she did a fantastic job and i was talking to michael elliott who did the documentary and he feels that like you know she was, she was pretty reluctant at first but then she kind of came around to the whole idea and realized this was a celebration of her husband and she was all on board and did a great job and michael elliott feels that our documentary was kind of the thing that opened a door for her to do the viceland piece yeah and in some of the bonus features of the documentary we did um, in the Viceland piece they go to the storage unit which I go to Michael L.A. and I go why didn't you do that <laughs> and he's just like well that was all the way in Austin but what he did do that Viceland didn't do that's in the bonus features of the documentary I think it's on the DVD bonus is she had the briefcase I think that he had in Puerto Rico that had all the stuff in it and papers and they open it up and they go through it yeah. on camera so, but she's um, a steward for her husband's legacy as well as his son, and they are still making sure that their father and their husband's legacy lives on. All right. Well, final thoughts on Bruiser Brody. I uh, I keep floating back to the the interview he did, the blue screen, the shooter interview, and I just I just see so many similarities of how. I want my career to be and how I've tried to make it be and just I get so frustrated when people make pro wrestling so hard and I just love his simplistic way of looking at it like yeah sure TV's great and yeah sure but of course he also makes it very clear like yeah I feel that way because I've already wrestled in Madison Square Garden I've already I've already had the big moments but I want to go around and I want to I want to help I want to go touch the wrestling fans I want to have interactions with these people. And, and I, I feel that way too. I really, really, I, I feel the same exact way. And I mentioned it earlier. I feel like every inch that he fought for the independence of professional wrestling is a trail that people like the Young Bucks and Kenny Omega are, are riding on today. I mean, all of that is because Bruiser Brody fought for it and fought for a space like that to exist and um, I think that's what his legacy is. And just, you know, he's, some people consider him to be a bully, but he was protecting a brand. He knew what his brand was. I, 
So I have conflicted feelings about that. I have conflicted feelings about some of the ways he treated matches. But the, it was all because of an independent spirit. I mean, you, you look back at, like, artists that were super DIY and wanted it done a certain way. And they were shitbag human beings to the people they loved. But, you know, Bruiser Brody may have had his flaws, but he was good to people that he loved. And you can see even today in the way that his his wife talks about him today and the way his son talks about him today and his friends like Stan Hansen and Tony Atlas and Dutch Mantel all talk about him that way. I think that's that's more of a reflection of who he is. And hopefully that's how he's remembered. If I could ask wrestling fans, one thing is don't let his death overshadow his career. Like I know it's the cool thing to talk about. It's like the big headline. But Bruiser Brody was awesome. You know, he had the balls to stand up for himself and show business. You know, he he would say, I'll leave here and go be a star anyway. And then he had the talent to back it up. In, In the ring, he influenced and or scared the hell out of a generation of wrestlers. He could brawl. He could technical wrestle. And we give a lot of credit to, like, say, Bam Bam or Vader for being big men that could move. But... Bruiser's up there too, you know, wrestling long hour matches, throwing drop kicks, running guys half his size into the ground. He was also, he's criminally underrated on the mic. He's always a good promo guy. Bruiser was indie before there was indie. He was punk before there was punk. I have nothing but respect for him. And Jose Gonzalez took Frank Goodish off this earth, but he did not kill him. Bruiser Brody is a name that has lived and will always live on, while Jose's legacy will always be that of a murderous coward. Every bump Jose ever took, every blade job he ever did, every match he broke his body for will forever mean absolutely nothing, and Jose Gonzalez will always live in the shadow of a man who was greater than he could ever dream of being. Long live Bruiser Brody. Um, I had so many notes doing research and deep diving on this. Look up the Gary Hart angle or where they'd always bring an ambulance to the ring or bring an ambulance to the stadium because they knew that Brody was going to destroy the opponent so much that they would have to wheel him out. I think Brody could be labeled a dick. I mean, he really was at times. He Like Jake said, he was a bully, but he recognized... I. <laughs> it's easy to say that, oh, I have a wife and a kid. I'm doing it for them and excusing that for a bunch of shit and it's all subjective and you can make your own opinions on stuff but all the research i did i truly fucking believe that for him man he knew he had a small window with to make all this money he knew how temporary his body was and he knew because he was smart as fuck that he had to get his way to get all the money because he was a commodity and he had to work as such the murder I say it too much. It's probably annoying. I'm sorry. I True crime, unsolved murders fucks me up. I love pro wrestling to death. So when they come together, it's it's like too many emotions at once, man. You might see it on the dark side of the ring part where Carlos Colon says, oh, cover up. I don't, I don't know. The only people that could have done it was me and Jovica, and we didn't do it. And it's like, oh, oh, you were the only ones that could have done it, and you said you couldn't do it. Well, that clears it up. Fucking thanks. Jake tells a story about all the wrestlers getting intimidated by Jose. And please type in uh, Bully Ray or Bubba Dudley or whatever. It'll pull up and the word Brody. 
And he tells a story about Jose putting Bubba's hand on his thigh so that he can feel the gun in his pocket. And talking to Tony Atlas later, Bubba realized because Jose lives in fear constantly now. Like Jake touched on, he always worries about retribution from an American. And that hearing that, it's fucked up and it's scary, but it makes me so happy because that reveals how much fucking fear that Jose lived in, how much shit he had to fucking constantly worry about. If you go to his Facebook, which is Jose Huertas Gonzalez, there's a picture of a mask, you can call his number for birthday parties. You really can. They say it in there and it sounds like bullshit. You can't get the full number on Facebook. Go to his Instagram, which is Invader one I mean, Nick might edit this out, but his phone number is 787-938-8503. If you look at his Facebook, there is nothing but people that it makes me happy in this world that I didn't see a fucking single defender. There is someone calling him every horrible fucking name in the world, posting pictures of the greatness that is Brody. And Jose, even his fucking... Okay, his profile picture is him in a mask. His cover photo is a picture of Bruiser Brody in Spanish saying, I didn't kill Bruiser Brody. Like, if that doesn't fucking scream, I did kill fucking Bruiser Brody, then dost thou protest too much? You fucking piece of shit. It drives me insane. All the research that I did for this... Just, I wanted to get into it. So I, I, Tony Alice, Dutch Mantel, Savio Vega. These are all the people that have an opinion on this because it is just fucking taking over minds. Dan Spivey, Tom Pritchard, Manny Fernandez, Jake the Snake, Stan Hansen, Rocky Johnson, Jim Cornette, Superstar Billy Graham, Road Warrior Animal, Rugged Ronnie Garvin, Ric Flair, Nikita Koloff, Dave Metzler, Devin Hannibal TV Nicholson, Nick Bonkwinkle, Slick, Bruno Sammartino, Carlito, who is Cologne's uh, son, or uh, shit, I forget, uh, Tracy Smothers, Honky Tonk Man, Demo Lil Doink, a.k.a. Tiger Jackson, Al Snow, who tells one of the most endearing, great fucking Brody stories I've ever heard, Dr. David Schultz, Ron Fuller, Terry Funk, Harley Race, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, Bill Alfonso, Kevin Sullivan, and Vader. And all these people have an opinion on it because everybody wants to know from each one because this is that fucking important and it's such fucking bullshit. I get so fucking pissed off when people get away with ruining not just one life. He killed fucking Brody, and Brody's gone forever. And it's not even just Barbara, and it's not even just Jeff. But everyone connected to them and how that affects them and what they could have become if their fucking dad wasn't murdered. And even from a wrestling fucking nerd perspective, all the stuff that could have been with Brody, all the matches he could have had when All Japan went fucking insane in the early 90s with Kabashi and Kawada and Masawa and when Stan, when Hanson really kind of came into his prime and what could have been with Hogan. I mean, because, you know, he, Brody would have probably had a small WWF run before, I don't know, he fucking punched Vince in the face. All the things that could have been if Jose Gonzalez wasn't the biggest cowardly piece of fucking shit in the world. And I, as stupid as this is, I'm just going to end on a YouTube comment from a video of Jose being interviewed by a news station while Jose held a baby because he needed all the fucking sympathy he could get. Here's the quote. He was a sack of fuck who had to use a knife because he is a coward. So do your interviews and hold your babies, because when your life is over, hell waits for you. All right, that is our episode on the great 
Bruiser Brody. We can't thank you enough for sticking with us for an entire revolution around the giant burning ball of gas that gives us life. Seriously, thank you so much. Um, we appreciate your support, and you can further support us by just leaving a rating and a review. Also help us make it to year two over at patreon.com slash 10 We have some cool tiers there, some bonus content, some cool gifts, and if... All our listeners just gave $1. It would be a game changer as far as other things we want to do with this podcast. Um, yell at us on social media at Tim Bell Pod. I'm Nicolessa on the social medias. Jake is Man Scout Manning on all the things. Mike is Trotter 27 on Twitter. <laughs> this is Tim Bell Pod. I should have, it's been a year. I don't have a sign-off line. Oh, God. We really suck. Come on. I don't know. Ted Koppel? I... Is that what the, the name mean? of a guy who used to do news? <laughs> Bruiser Brody, this is your 10 bell pod. Uh, that was like the first one. That's good. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of 10 Bell Pod. If you want to support the show, head over to patreon.com slash 10 bell pod. There you can find bonus content, t-shirts, Man Scout Manning DVDs. You can even tell us who to cover in a future episode. That's patreon.com slash 10bellpod.